You with the tongue out. You gotta say your name. Generally. Generally what? Generally nothing. Generally nothing Underwood, right? <laughs> Shirley was born January 9th, 1982. She was the second child to us, and she came five weeks early. I wonder sometimes if she uh, maybe knew her time here would be short, and so she was anxious to get here. Shirley was always happy and always had a smile on her face. I'm gonna go for a ride. The last time I saw Geralee was at the evening meal. I probably told her I love her and that and I'd see her in a little bit. And that's the last time we saw her. Joyce and I were outside doing stuff. Somebody had tried to get a hold of us. She saw Jerry get in a car. We immediately called the police. We dispatched a patrol officer. We realized that we were dealing with an abduction. At least two witnesses say they saw a man jump out of the car, grab Jerry, shoved her back in the car, and took off. As time went on, the hours and days went on, we became more concerned that this would be not just an abduction, but probably a murder. The police never really told me they were looking for a stranger. He saw how Jerry carried herself, how confident Jerry was, and he took that total stranger. He used his handgun and shot her twice in the head, which caused her to die almost instantly. He was a sexual psychopath, a sadistic rapist, and a murderer. very loving, loved to take care of people and be kind. Yeah, she took care of her siblings really well. Always had a smile on her face. Really? I remember her doing that. It was summertime, so Shirley was out of school. She was 11 years old. Shirley and her brother Jamin started a newspaper route in September of 92. The route was real close to our home, so her and her brother could walk. We talked a lot about safety and not talking to strangers. And we knew a lot of the people in the neighborhood, a lot of their customers, we knew who they were. Earlier that day, we had a little bit of a rain but at 5.30 in the evening, it was clear, sun was shining, nice and warm, just a beautiful day. She had an orthodontist appointment, and then after that appointment, came home and got ready to deliver their papers. They'd roll them and then put an elastic band around them, put them in their newspaper bags. 
she expressed that she wanted to take her bike. I had a flat tire, so I went outside to fix her tire so that she could take her bike. Um, and when I came back in to tell her it was ready, she had already left to go deliver her papers. Our neighbor came over. We were outside working in the garden, and so she couldn't call us. So she came over to our house and told us that Jerry had gotten into a car with somebody. Well, at first we thought that Jerry maybe had gotten a ride home because there was another neighbor that would give her a ride. Since she wasn't home, we went looking for her, went um, around trying to find out where she had been, which houses she'd been to. When we found out that she had been pushed into the car, that's when we became really, really concerned that, okay, well, if she got pushed into the car, then somebody's taken her. Immediately, we called the police. We sent out two detectives to respond to the call because it was called in, not as a, my kid's missing, it was, we believe we've had an abduction of a young girl. I was assigned as a lieutenant in the detective division. I was immediately very concerned. My heart sank, it put me into panic mode, basically, because I wondered if this is real, this doesn't sound good. We got in touch with the chief of police, Jim Benham, and explained what was going on. We got a location where Jira Lee was allegedly abducted from, which was on the west side of town. It's a residential area. As a parent, I was always praying that I could be guided and directed where I needed to go to try to find Jira Lee. Had no idea of what to do. We had an elderly lady that lived on the corner that had just paid Jira Lee for her newspaper subscription. And as she moved about the inside of her house, she happened to look out the window to the side of her home. She observed the male from the car suddenly grab Jira Lee and force her into the driver's side of the car to the passenger side, that he then quickly jumped in the car and sped from the area. The detectives obtained the description of the vehicle and the partial description of the individual white male approximately 5'7 to 5'8, wearing a plaid shirt and a cap. The detective phoned the information into dispatch, and that's what we put out to the patrol units and immediately dispatched it to area units. We got a description from the parents of what she was wearing and that she had her newspaper bag, a canvas newspaper bag that fits over the shoulders, and a little bag that she carried her money in. Jeff went looking for her. I stayed at home. I expected her to just come around the corner anytime and say, hey, Mom, look what tip I got. Look how much tip I got today or whatever. I just kind of stood out the front window just kind of waiting or waiting for a phone call, hoping that she'd be home quickly. I was at a Boy Scout camp, and I was contacted by one of my counselors I was horrified. I knew the Underwoods, I knew Jerry Lee, and my first thoughts were, what can we do to help? We knew that the sooner that we could get the word out, the better. Everyone on that department was looking in every corner we could find, trying to find a car, 
trying to find anything that looked unusual, anybody or a car that was out of place. I mean, there were 80 sets of eyes looking everywhere. A few hours later, we ended up getting a modified description from another witness. This gentleman was pretty sure it was a General Motors product, five or 10 years old, medium-sized sedan with a darker roof and a yellowish or light beige or cream-colored body. In a typical abduction, if it's a young girl that's involved, usually the perpetrator, they're thinking something devious involving the young lady, and usually they want to go somewhere fairly close but remote to do any kind of a sexual attack or anything like that. We covered those areas outside of town, 10 miles south, east, and west of Pocatello to see if we could find anything. We didn't see any vehicles anywhere near close to matching that description that we could stop and investigate further. We had no luck. That first night was just so hard. Joyce and I held each other, cried, tears in her eyes. It was just really, really hard. We worked through the night strategizing and try to come up with a game plan of what we we're going to do and how we were going to find her as quickly as we could. Time was of the essence. The decision to assign the investigation to Scott Shaw was made by myself, Captain Lynn Harris, and Lieutenant Kirk Nelson. The department had sent him to a number of specialized training schools dealing with violent crimes, and he took a great interest in that. So it was decided that he was to be the lead on this. Over the years, we've learned that, unfortunately, one of the first things you always look at is family. Statistically, nationwide, abductions in this manner, the perpetrator knows the victim. And you always want to look closely at the family dynamic and see if anything sticks out there that we need to pay additional attention to. That was really disheartening to think that, you know, that we would be the ones that would try and hurt her or do something to her. It was not a pleasant experience. You are very special. So may I say, have a truly wonderful happy birthday. Everybody knew that Jeff and Joyce Underwood were very, very involved in their church. Members of their church began to appear from nowhere to assist them becomes fairly obvious that they're pretty well respected. We kept looking. We interviewed neighbors. We interviewed everybody we could find that knew anything about the family, what the relationship was. And a decision was made that the family was not involved. The police had to rule out that she didn't have a boyfriend or that she hadn't run away from home because of trouble here at home. Shirley didn't have a boyfriend. She was 11 years old. You know, not many 11-year-olds have boyfriends. So that was not um, even a possibility. She had no grief with the family, no discipline issues. 
had done well in the school year. She was excited about going on the family picnic and that they were gonna go on that weekend. There was just nothing that led us to believe that it was anything other than a, probably a stranger abduction or an extended acquaintance. They're really looking for a needle in a haystack. Particularly with a child, every single minute that passes, the odds of the police safely finding them go down. So within a few hours, they could be local or still within the state. Within a day, they could be anywhere within the country. And within two or three days, they could be anywhere in the world. So it makes searching for that young person that much harder. We thought, oh, she'll be back. Whoever took her, we'll let her go and let her come back home. We still had hope that she would come back home. wanted a large family so that when we went places we could you know always have somebody to be with there wasn't somebody left out so I wanted an even number of children so that's why we had six children Jeff wanted 12 and uh, six was enough <laughs> So little. Can't believe what was it? Four pounds, nine ounces. Four pounds, twelve ounces. Yeah. Well, both those are the day we brought her home. Jerry was born five weeks early, and so ended up spending nine days or ten days in the hospital. Because she came early, she was very small. But she caught up really quick when she was probably three and her brother was four. Jerry really loved to dance. She developed a talent of clogging. She uh, loved to read and just loved being outdoors and very active and just being with her friends. She was never could stay mad for very long. Always had a great smile. Every picture you see, there was a big smile on her face. We've always had a strong belief in God, and we've taught our children that. You know, we always continue to be an example to them of the importance of having faith. We, as a department, including the investigators, all felt that we were still looking for a live victim, that Geraldine was still alive. At the beginning of this investigation, the biggest thing that Scott Shaw was wanting to push was media attention. 
because he felt with enough media attention on this situation that somebody would come forward. The media plays a critical role in getting the word out and being an amplifier for what police are doing, what the family of the missing person is doing. And if the media is not sufficiently covering a case, it actually has a lower likelihood of being successfully resolved where that child is found and found safely. Within just about a day, we had as many of our people going door to door, particularly on the newspaper route that Jurali had and other neighboring newspaper routes to see if there had been any potential witnesses or sightings of suspicious persons or the vehicle. City of Pocatello has, at that time, roughly speaking, 80 trained police personnel that were available to do searches. We needed three times that many. So we took advantage of what was offered to us by the community. The police organized a search. Just a lot of people got involved. People met at the church and then were given assignments of where to go look. When we gathered at the church house, Shaw looked over the parking lot of the vehicles of people that showed up in the event that our suspect may show up with the suspect vehicle. This is something that a lot of narcissistic killers love to see. When they show up at a scene, whether it's a funeral, a search party, and they're thinking, all of these people are here because of me. And they feel this sense of pride. For them, seeing newspaper reports, people coming out, and they think in their minds it's because of their work. We looked the people over very closely that were helping us with the search, and we didn't really see anybody that matched the description or profile, and we didn't see any vehicles that matched closely. We received information from the Federal Bureau of Investigation stating this is the individual that you're probably looking for. The FBI believed he would plan his steps and his moves, and he was an organized offender. As it turned out, Sergeant Shaw did not agree with that. Shaw believed that the fact that it was in the middle of the afternoon, broad daylight, busy street, people out in their yards and so forth, it was more likely a stranger abduction than someone that knew her. Both of our witnesses observed Geraldine interacting with the man near the car indicated that she appeared to be comfortable, not on edge or scared or anything like that. That was a little confusing to us. Shaw was able to come up with the hypothesis that maybe it was someone that she briefly knew or had briefly met. That was why she appeared so calm. At this point, we were looking more likely towards us being a stranger and that somehow this individual had tricked her into feeling like she wasn't in immediate danger when he was talking to her. We came to the conclusion that this was a member of our own community. November of 92, on the opposite end of town, we had a stranger abduction of a young lady, a middle-aged teen where she was taken from a restaurant parking lot by a stranger and was taken up into the outskirts on the west side of town and uh, sexually assaulted. She was released and she got a good look at the individual and she gave us a good description that allowed us to get what's called a sketch. 
of what the individual would look like. Shaw began to see some similarities and the possibility that this crime and the abduction of Gerald Lee Underwood could possibly have been done by the same individual. All offenses are pre-planned to some degree. They are rehearsed in somebody's mind. They are fantasized about. But nevertheless, somebody needs to have an opportunity to offend. They need to have access to a victim. And they can either plan to do this so you can lure a victim to you, or you can be very opportunistic and you can see an opportunity, such as a little girl on a paper round, and seize it. And the people who are more likely to do that are far more impulsive. And also, they are far more likely to be people who have done it in the past. It just so happened that about the third day after the abduction, we got a call from an individual who indicated that we needed to look more closely at someone she knew. She indicated he was a relative. He closely matched the description. She also indicated that he looked quite similar to the CompuSketch image that we had obtained from the young lady that had been abducted. She believed that he drove a vehicle that closely matched the description that we'd put out through the media and in the flyers, that it was possible that he also had some friends that he spent time with down on the south main area in the same block that Geraldine had come up missing from three days earlier. The relative view this man as James or Jimmy Wood. Three days in the disappearance of living year old Geraldine Underwood. An individual made a phone call and gave the department some information which we consider to be critical. An individual named James Wood. He was staying with relatives at that point. He and this relative, sometime between the third and the fifth day after Geraldine disappeared, went on a camping trip. She believed that the vehicle that we may be looking for that was owned and driven by this individual would have possibly been out on the property, which is in a rural area several miles north of Pocatello. We were able to send a couple of people out and looked over the property and they were able to find a vehicle that closely matched the description that we were looking for. We got a hold of our witness and showed it to him, and he indicated that looked very close, but he couldn't give us an exact, definite, yes, this is the vehicle. By that Monday, we were contacted at the police station by the man who was a relative of James and had been putting him up in his basement for the previous eight months roughly, came to the department and indicated he wanted to report what information he had. The fact that he was suspicious because James didn't come home that night of the abduction, that he had shaved his mustache, that he no longer wore any of the clothing that he was wearing when he came back that morning of the 30th of June. He also knew that James owned a handgun. He knew that he was a convicted felon, had served time in prison. When this information was received, it was determined that it was credible from the standpoint of there were there were specifics involved. Came extremely close to matching the profile that Sergeant Shaw had developed. He became our primary suspect. 
we, we were trying to determine more accurately who he was and what his past involved to see if he had any kind of possible alibi. We went out and did some more interviews with the people that lived on the route where Jira Lee had been just moments before she was abducted. And we learned that Wood had actually been at the house at the time Jira Lee had come to collect for the newspaper. He left the home almost immediately after Jira Lee walked out of the house and had indicated he was going to the store to buy beer and that he would be back shortly and that he never came back. July 6th, James Wood was arrested by the Pocatello Police Department. When we knocked on the door, we advised him that we had a warrant for his arrest for first-degree kidnapping and to turn around and place his hands behind his back, which was his hesitant to do, which means I placed him on the ground and we handcuffed him and removed him from the residence. Now, there was a degree of psychology involved in the arrest. Shaw suggested that we have a number of personnel there that would look him in the eye and file past him as he was sitting in the police car handcuffed. It was carefully staged. Shaw wanted to use the psychology of the community, this very tight-knit community, against him and show that there were so many people that were disappointed and so upset at what James Wood had done that one of the only ways he could find redemption was by telling the truth and letting the community know what really happened so they could find some peace. Once he got into the police station, Shaw took Wood into his office and closed the door. He didn't want any other personnel in there with him to, as a distraction. We just didn't know at the time where Jerry Lee was, and he needed to establish a connection with Wood to convince him to tell us what had happened with her, where he'd taken her. He told Shaw that he had driven her down towards the Utah-Idaho border after abducting her, and they had slept the night in the car. He'd um, attempted to uh, sexually assault her, but Jerry chastised him for that, told him to knock it off, and so he claimed he did. After they slept the night in the car, he let her out outside of the town. We didn't believe that, so Shaw kept working on him, and within an hour or two, Wood finally said, there's more to the story, I lied to you. He'd driven back through Pocatello and decided to take her to Idaho Falls, about 40 miles north of Pocatello. Eventually, Wood described to Sergeant Shaw how he had told Jerry she could go to some bushes to uh, go to the bathroom. And he walked up and shot her in the back of the head. Wood dismembered her and threw the remains into the Snake River. James Wood confessed, and he didn't need to confess at that time because there was very little evidence at that point in the inquiry to link him. But yet, he told them everything. And I think that offenders do this because sometimes it's a relief. It feels like an unburdening. But for other people, it's about bragging about what they've done, or even it's about reliving what they've done. 
pretty much as soon as they opened the door, I knew what the news was that person in custody had admitted to killing Jerley, that she was no longer with us. It was very hard to hear that our daughter had been killed. I just remember Joyce and I, just the tears rolling down our face. To know that we would never see Jarley again, that she would not be here with us in this life anymore. <clears throat> um, we were grateful to know that you know, to have, finally have an answer and know what had happened instead of wondering all our lives where she was or if she was still alive. Because I cannot even imagine not knowing. As hard as it was to know that she was killed, um, the not knowing would have been so much harder. tears and the sobs from our children when we brought them here in this room and told them that they would never see their sister again. Because her life had been taken by James Wood. We felt that it was necessary for them to understand the totality of what happened to their daughter. And we did, in fact, go back to them and tell them that she had been shot and that she'd been dismembered and that the body had been thrown in the river and that we were going to do our darndest to get her back. We're at the north end of Idaho Falls on the west bank of Snake River where James Wood brought Geralee Underwood. Once we learned this was the scene of the murder, we notified the sheriff's office and the Idaho Falls Police Department because it then became their crime scene. And they brought in a dive team with the intention of trying to recover her remains and any evidence. He showed us where he had killed her. When he showed us where he had cut her up with a hatchet and a knife, uh, we were able to see what appeared to be remnants of blood in the tamped down grass. There's a lot of reasons why offenders will sometimes bring police to the scene of a crime when it was otherwise not known. And in this case, it could be that this was one of the last chances he would ever have to relive the crime he committed. This is like a vacation for us. We love to look at photo albums and think about it again, go through our cell phone pictures and relive happy times. And in the mind of James Wood, going back to the crime scene, even though it was horrific, for him, it was a happy moment. He received a lot of pleasure out of it. And so while he was able to get something out of it, obviously the police gained a lot more. Some of her remains were not located until close to a week later. A 
couple of miles downstream, some city workers located her torso near a power plant. Because of circumstances of Jerry's murder, we weren't able to view her after her death. And that was very difficult. And I wondered many times, okay, was that really her? How do you know it was her? They had dental records that were able to identify her, and so there's no question, but it still was hard not seeing her to, to know in my heart that that really was her. Um, maybe more, um, because as her mother, I wanted a different outcome. Now I wanted her to come home. I wanted her to be with me. So it was hard to accept. I can tell you that in 48 years of law enforcement, I have never seen another case of a absolute stranger abduction and murder as the one of Geraldine Underwood. When we interviewed people who were potential witnesses, we got two sides of James Wood. One that we treat him like a relative and the other one, he's kind of a leech. These are notes to myself. This was uh, details of uh, other crimes that had been committed that Mr. Wood would admit to. Everything from first degree murder to kidnapping, two counts of rape, two counts of crimes against nature, one of aggravated assault, two counts of robbery, and one of attempted robbery. James Wood had a long history of other types of interpersonal and violent offenses. These were escalating gradually, but really hit a crescendo right before he committed the abduction and murder of Geraldine Underwood. This is something that was not initially known, but through this investigation, police found out that he was responsible for these other types of offenses that were so similar to what he had done to Geraldine. As far back as the late 1960s, he had befriended a couple of ladies that he thought had cheated him or caused his car to be stolen. And he ended up cutting their throats and then raping one of the women, thinking he had killed them both, but they both survived. And then later on in the 70s, he admitted he approached a woman that was gassing her car up near a grocery store, grabbed her, stuck a gun in her ribs, sexually assaulted her and shot her in the head, matter-of-factly, leaving her for dead. But she ended up surviving. In early fall of 1992, he had molested his 14 or 15-year-old stepdaughter with his second wife and raped her. He was afraid after doing this, because it was probably an impulsive act, because that's the kind of person he was and that the law would be looking for him. So he stole his wife's credit card and one of her handguns, which ended up being, we believe, the same handgun that he used to threaten our other rape victim and to kill Jura Lee. I think that 
Violence towards women had become such an ingrained pattern in James Wood, so he knew that he would never be safe around women. He gave an interview and he said, if you let me out of prison, I will kill again. It's a guarantee. He knew that he had this very, very strong compulsion, that he didn't have the willpower to fight. And the number of offences that he's committed are huge. This is a part of his life now, a part of his life that he can't imagine living without. Jerry Lee's funeral was a very spiritual experience. As I walked into the chapel that day, it was completely full. Kurt Howard, the comments that he made, just amazing at how many people were there. Brought us a lot of comfort. The name Gerald Lee has been a byword, a rallying word, a word, a name that has stirred emotions within all of us. And today we come to reverence her name and express our love and respect for her one more time. Many of us from the department, we wanted to attend the service to show support to the Underwoods and express our grief and, and condolences to them for what they'd had to undergo. It was tough on the whole department. We all needed some closure the details of what had happened and then the details of other things he had done earlier in his life that were similarly heinous. It kind of sticks with you and we all needed some closure and that service helped, helped me at least. This past week, we've seen a mom and a dad. They have taught us so much about love, compassion, understanding and forgiving. Wood negotiated through his attorney a plea agreement where he would plead to the abduction, rape, and murder of Jerry The other charges, the court agreed to dismiss them without prejudice, which meant they could at a later time uh, file those charges but there was an agreement that they would not do so if he pled to those charges related to Geraldine Underwood. We didn't go to the initial hearings. They encouraged us not to just because of all the graphic things that would be brought up and felt that that was really be hard for us to hear. At the end, he was sentenced to the death penalty in the state of Idaho. When we do something wrong, we need to pay for that. There needs to be restitution made. I don't know in this case. I mean, nothing can bring Jerley back. I felt like a death sentence was appropriate since he murdered our daughter. I didn't know if it ever really happened, because it seems like with the system, it takes a long time for that to be carried out. But I knew that, um, once he died, that he would receive his just reward. 
the judge sentenced Wood to be put to death by lethal injection. Since that time, he had been in the penitentiary and in 2004 died of natural causes. And my understanding is it was a heart attack. He wasn't an organized perpetrator at all. Almost all of his crimes weren't really thought out or planned out in advance. He was impulsive. He was compulsive. He made snap decisions, and he was good enough at what he did that he had more or less a false sense of confidence that he could get away with it. Wood didn't know Geraldine prior to her coming to collect at the house of the friend that he was at that evening for dinner, but that he took an interest in her. He conversed with her a little bit, and he hatched this scheme to assault her and then ultimately end her life violently. He is at the worst of the worst end of the spectrum in terms of dangerousness. This is a man that is both sadistic, impulsive, reckless, has low empathy for others, and very little remorse for the actions that he commits. He probably would have committed more offenses and just would have kept on the commission of violence that he was going on if he did not get stopped by police. The area where Jelly was taken is the path to go anywhere into town, and so we pass that daily. Now I don't think about it near as much, but sometimes I'd drive by it and I just would scream. It was, it was hard to pass by at first. Most of our memories of Jerry is right here in our home. Once in a while, we'll go over to the cemetery because there's a, a nice headstone on her grave. There's a plaque in front of the church by a tree that was planted in her memory. She just was just so full of energy and, and just wanted to accomplish so much. Shirley's faith was very important to her. Always teaching other people about Christ and how to forgive and to be kind, to be honest. Now I can't stop crying. <laughs> I just like to say to Jerry, I love you and I miss you.